Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 61, the one about spam email, video editing cuts, Canva and Harry Potter, and the Philosopher's Stone. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. And as always, we're here to keep you up to date on the latest news, tech and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me as co-host, as always, is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. The highlight of my week as ever, being in a company with a man who's also on a mission to keep my Marketing Simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance podcast and the host of the Roger video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. <laughs> oh, Pascal, it's great to be with you again, talking about our favorite subjects, marketing and films and all things in between. And we have got some fantastic content to share with everybody today. Whether you're watching this on video, whether you're listening to this on audio, we have really got some great stuff to talk about. And the film this week is the first of the Harry Potter series. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And Pascal, I have to say, I haven't watched this film for quite a long time. And I've always been a little bit dubious about the Harry Potter series for reasons we'll talk about later, but I actually really enjoyed it. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it today. But before we get to films, we've got quite a lot to get through. So let's go straight into the first section of the show, which is In the News. And we begin with Pets at Home, the pet supply retailer who is celebrating the brand's marketing velocity thanks to the ramping up of their personalization and customer relationship marketing efforts. The popularity of subscription video on demand, SVOD, services such as Netflix, Disney Plus and YouTube Premium is continuing to climb post-lockdown with 56% of Brits now viewing these services every week. Well, according to the latest edition of the work study, the Jaffa Jonats ad campaign scored the top 15% of all UK ads for branding and in the top 20% for short-term sales potential. Tesco's Christmas campaign with Santa showing a COVID passport has received more than 1,500 complaints, making it the most complained about advert of the year so far. Well, an all-too-ingenious oops campaign, which replicated the gut-wrenching feeling of smashing your phone screen, has been named the outdoor campaign of the decade at the Drum Awards for Out of Home. New rules banning ads for cosmetic interventions from targeting under-18s has been introduced by the Committee for Advertising Practice, taking effect from the 25th of May 2022. Three UK launches a new loyalty app to help customers make meaningful moments, a new free app to download rewards that provides customers with exclusive offers. And ITV has launched AdLabs, a new enterprise and strategy created to bring together all of its commercial innovative activities under one banner. The broadcaster says the initiative will bring its customers close to the pipeline of new innovations as they're tested and trialed. So wow. great stuff this week, Pascal, as always. And I want to zip straight back to the first of those news items, pets at home and personalization. Now, it, it's, it's interesting to me that it says that they're ramping up the personalization of their customer relations and marketing efforts. Um, we shop at pets at home we are on their mailing list and of course what's quite nice about pets at home 
because of, from a personalization point of view is that the letters that we get from them are actually addressed to our cat <laughs> as opposed to us. It's almost like Lottie care of Mr. and Mrs. Edwards. And, and it's a bit, I don't know, some people might say it's a bit cheesy, Pascal, but it always makes me feel a little bit, oh, that's quite nice. I like that. And it gives me a warm feeling about pets at home because they sort of tap into that sort of affection that people have for their pets and that you would expect that to happen. But how far should we take personalization? As far as you can take it, Roger, this is really one of the trends amongst uh, other that are really can become important. There is a statement that was made by somebody else, and I wish I could name them, which is the the rise of the personal brand and the rise of the personal experience. So two things. It's not just that Pets at Home personalizes from the point of view of the customer, but actually you would want to know who at Pets at Home is taking care of the communication. We need to be dealing with individuals on both sides. Um, but I think I'm, I'm with you by the ramping up because on one hand, I thought, well, they were doing quite well. We used to have two Jack Russells. Uh, we missed them daily. They just died of, of old age. And we used to even get uh, special food on for Barney because with, with as he got older, his stomach was a bit more sensitive. And like you, his uh, kind of special drive was addressed to him and he had instructions to for his humans and his, <laughs> and his owners in terms of how to prepare his food. And therefore, and the story was, you know, communicate these instructions to your humans and all will be well. Um, so, so I think for me, this idea of ramping up thinking, okay, so they are still looking for ways to improve. They're, they're not satisfied with, with the status quo and where are they going to take it? But um, th this is a perfect example example of a good heart and mind, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that my view is that, you know, I've no problem at all with personalization and, and, and the pets at home have got it absolutely nailed. But I think that if you're going to do it, you've got to do it right. I mean, for every pets at home, there are brands out there who just make mistakes. I mean, you'll get emails every day, which say, dear, in brackets, first name or something mm. like that. So they're trying to be uh, personalized, but they're obviously screwing it up. And I think that if you are going to try and create a more intimate relationship with somebody, you've got to get it right. Because if you don't get it right, then you're going to drive a wedge between you and that customer. I think it's about testing. Um, yeah. People need to test, test, and test. I used to have a boss who was very, very strict on that, and rightly so. Yeah. And... Do you like Jaffa Cakes? I do like Jaffa Cakes, and this no. campaign was just so funny. Yeah, and, I mean, the product itself is is pretty genius. I mean, everybody, most people like J Jaffa Cakes, and, and you know that some people like the cake bit, some people like that smashing orangey bit in the middle, uh, which was a campaign slogan from back in the 80s, I think, and, of course, the chocolate on top. You know, it's a perfect combination. But, of course, what the genius of what they've done here is they've taken another firm sweet favourite, the donut, and they've effectively merged them together. It's almost like the Jaffa Joe Nut, as they're calling it, is the, is the miraculous child of a <laughs> mix right. between uh, of, of a Jaffa cake and a donut, and they've come up with this Joe Nut. And I think immediately people just buy into it oh that that just sounds absolutely heavenly before they've even started this great marketing campaign 
Well, all the marketing of it was the tone of a uh, of a story being told to a child. You know, when a when a mummy and a daddy love each other a lot. You know, that kind of things. And, <laughs> yeah. and I thought it, again was so witty, and there was incredible warmth into it. And actually, thinking about you know your selection of the news today, it's a lot to do with emotions. I know there's been mm. the award as well, but the awards granted to those who find a way to connect with customers at that level, which is. Not condescending, not patronising. On the contrary, it's a little nog and nod and a wink at you know uh, pop culture personalization, you know, uh, love of pets or food or whatever, and being almost creating a sense of complicity in the storytelling and the advertising, which is why the Jaffa Jonuts made everybody smile, and there is they they got the the, the accolade, you know, rightly so. Yeah, and, you know, this week, Pascal, I was at a conference. I was doing a speech on a stage at a mm. conference, um, you know, first time for such a long time. And, of course, I was talking to people about one of my bugbears, that is annoying ads. You know, my phrase, engage, don't enrage. There's so many adverts out there that enrage me because they interrupt me or the message is wrong or the execution is wrong. But I think this is a really good example of an engaging product surrounded by engaging advertising. And that is a winning combination. And that's when advertising actually works, when it's engaging. It's just when it's annoying that it turns people off. Absolutely. And can I just say that as someone who's had to take a few days off to um, feel a little better and take a rest, I had to spend time watching daytime TV and I am done with the Christmas adverts. That's it. <laughs> and we are only at the start of the month. <laughs> I know. I know. So so we've gone from a warm feeling of absolute joy when we talk about Jaffa Donuts, Joe Nuts. Now we can tap into another um, emotion and that sort of anger or gut-wrenching despair, that moment which we've probably all been through when you drop your smartphone and it lands on the ground, smashes into the ground, and you hear that crack as the glass front shatters into a million pieces. And O2's advert campaign, the Oops campaign, which effectively taps into that despair and anger that you get when you smash the phone, I think quite rightly, again, maybe it doesn't deserve the campaign of the decade. That seems to me a little bit <laughs> presumptuous, <laughs> but definitely campaign of the year, because again, it just taps into something that we can all recognise. It was visually very strong and simple because you saw, because in this case, the outdoor campaigns, we're talking billboards, we're talking underground bus sides and that kind of things. And it was literally the image of broken glass. And, and mm -hmm. to, to, to your point, it brings, you know, so many sensory um, kind of recalls of the noise, of the, the sense and so on. Can I just say, although I am nervous to act because I may be tempting fate, but I've never, <laughs> I've never ever broken my phone or smashed my phone screen in all the, the years and years of owning a phone. Of course, and as I've said this, it'll happen next week, but uh, I have dropped it several times, and the feeling when you pick up your phone again to examine the damage is quite something, I will confess. No, it's, it's one of those, I mean, if you do drop it, it's almost like in the films, isn't it? It all goes <laughs> to slow motion, and you can see the phone very slowly, very slowly coming towards the floor, and even though in reality it takes a split second, it feels like hours. Um, I, so there's a couple of things I really liked about 
um, this campaign again is that they've been a little bit um, innovative with the with the billboards. Some of them have been tipped onto an angle or tipped onto the side, and it did amuse me that they had to put a plaque on each of these uh, skew whiff adverts to say it's meant to be like this, guys. You, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to report it to uh, to somebody to say that the ad the the banners tipped over or something like that. But innovative, all the same. What a great set of news items this week, as always, Pascal. But shall we focus in now specifically on some really interesting pieces of content and move on to the content spotlights? In this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content. It could be an article, it could be a podcast, it could be a video. So, Pascal, tell me, what have you got for us this week? So this week, I'm going to complete my journey of rediscovery around visual storytelling. You may recall a few weeks back, we looked at camera movements. Then we looked at mobile phone transitions using your lens. And I want to talk to you about editing and cutting. This is a video and an article called Nine Essential Cuts Every Video Editor Needs to Know. And this is by Lewis McGregor for shortstock.com. Now, what is interesting about this, I came across this video when it was first produced and published online in 2018. And it's been reissued as a blog post on the shortstock.com shutterstock.com official website as a blog so some lovely example of repurposing as well as well as you know a content that people should know so this is kind of my trilogy before we wrap up 2021 roger on this business of visual storytelling now you might be listening and watching this thinking well i'm not an editor i don't don't need to know this and i would argue that would be good for you even if you're the commissioner even if you're just a producer and working with somebody else to just know the language and understand what is possible in fact, knowing in advance what kind of cut is possible might even stimulate your imagination to come up with a better storyboard or a better story um, overall. So the nine essential cuts will be known to many of you. You may not know the names. So it's also nice to have the vocabulary. But I will say there is one that I've never used just yet. So this is my recommendation for viewers and listeners. Go through the, the article, watch the video, which is very, very good. There's examples as well against each cut from famous movies by Lewis McGregor. And give yourself a challenge. Could you introduce maybe a new form of cut for your next video effort? So you've got, of course, Roger, the standard cut. You know, you cut from one scene or clip to another. Then you've got the J cut and the L cut, which is when you borrow the sound from the previous scene or you introduce the sound from the, the preceding scene and so on. The jump cut, the montage, one of my favorites, um, made famous with uh, training montage like the Rocky movie and many others. The cross cut. That's one that I didn't know was called a crosscut. I used to call this a parallel cut, which is essentially when you have two characters or you know characters who are doing things at the same time and you cut from one to the other. I suppose the one that comes to mind would be Ocean's Eleven, when they try and and, and different team are trying to get into the casino, and you cut from one group of individuals to, to the other. Cutting in action, this is a lovely one to do. Cutaways, my favorite, Roger. And the one that I've never used yet, the match cut made famous by the movie 2001 Space Odyssey. 
that famous scene when the um, the kind of the ape throws the uh, the bone in the, in the air, and we match cut to the spaceship in into with the starry sky. And many people have done that, whereby, for example, um, you have a, um, a scene with the sun, and you match cut to an eye opening and someone waking up in the morning. So the match cut is the one that I've not used out of the nine, which is death for my challenge. These are all great. And as you know, Pascal, um, when I'm editing my Rog vlogs, I do try to use um, some of these methods. I, I'm a particular fan of the J cut and the L cut, that that idea of bringing the vocal in mm. or the, the, the sound from the next scene, or you bleed the sound over into the scene after it. I mean, it just I, I, it's obviously a, a foolproof technique because it absolutely works, doesn't it? It really moves the action along um and and it really works but yeah the match cut is a very interesting one isn't it i i, I think that is definitely a, a challenge that i'd like to have a think about as well <laughs> but what do you think about i mean sometimes it's a bit easy to overdo it isn't it i mean a lot of youtube videos you know people are using these swivel uh, transitions and and a, a very you know a very popular um, YouTube transition is where somebody takes the palm of the hand like that and they put it over the camera and then in the next shot they pull the palm away and of course they reveal that they've changed location and I think that's a really good cut but you've got some people who are doing it seven or eight ten times in a, in a video and it starts to lose its magic when they do it too much. Uh, I would agree. And I think there is something unique to mobile phones we explored last time, you know, the transitions. And I think they work really well. And it's part of the language of mobile phone videography. But I think when it comes to those, they are the cuts. And I think the term cut it takes you back to the days of scissors and glue, mm. where really there was nothing fancy apart from using good logic, good kind of story sense. And when you watch the... Um, a video and the the writing by Lewis McGregor, you'll see this idea of you have to make that judgment so that it helps the story along, and it creates a sense of immersion. But eventually, if you can, if you end up being, you know, spot the cuts or spot, you know, how many times I'm using the the hand over the lens transition, then the immersion is gone completely. And and I think Lewis would argue that uh, you, therefore, sadly, you failed as a video storyteller and as an editor. Absolutely right. But uh, yeah, it's always good, as we say so often on the show, to be reminded, even if you think these are the basics, it's very good to be reminded of them and just to think about how we can be a little bit more innovative with how we use them. Yeah. So what about yourself and what is on the table this week? Okay. This is a, this is a piece of content which amused me quite a lot, Pascal, and especially given what we just talked about in the news section a few moments ago about annoying adverts. Now, I'm sure, like me, uh, you have subscribed to an email list at some point. Maybe you fancied downloading their ebook, or you fancied listening to their webinar or whatever it was, and you find out very quickly that you're going to be inundated with emails from these people, you know, two or three times a day until the point comes where you get fed up with them and you hit the unsubscribe button. Now, this article is, in, uh, is on a website called Board Panda, and the title of the article is Employee Gets Revenge on Best Buy. Now, that's a Best Buy is a brand in the States. After it forces him to spam customers with promotional emails. Mm. 
Now, the story goes something like this. You've actually got this employee working in this store, and when people come to the checkout, there are certain items on the checkout list that require you to enter an email address in order to proceed with the checkout. So, for example, it could be an item of technology from a specific brand. And when you get to the um, checkout, it will prompt the checkout person to ask for the email. And previously, according to this um, article, the operative could effectively say to the person, do you want to give your email address? And if this person said no, then obviously click move on. But this particular uh, department store, shop, whatever it was, changed the rules so that if they didn't give the email, it wouldn't allow that item to appear on the checkout, i.e. they couldn't buy it without giving their email away. Now, I'm sure that in the UK and Europe, that would break all sorts of um, GDPR rules, but perhaps in the States, it's slightly different. But effectively, what these employees were finding is that they got people coming to the checkout, said to them, can you give me your email address? The person says, I don't want to. And then, well, I'm sorry, you'll have to give us the email address because otherwise I can't physically sell you this item. Now, I wonder how many people have walked out at that point, but also I wonder how many people have actually given the email address over. So this one employee decided that he was just fed up with this. He didn't think it was customer focused. He didn't think it was in the interest of the customer. He thought it was enraging the customer as opposed to engaging the customer. So he started doing something a little bit different. Instead of putting the email addresses in of the customer, he started putting the email addresses in of senior people in the company. And of course, what started to happen is that the senior people within the company started to be bombarded and inundated with their own spam emails. Now, what the article doesn't say is whether this individual got fired for doing this, um, but hopefully it sent a message to the high-ups. And maybe those high-ups are the sort of people sat, sat around a board table that actually don't think about the customer that often. You know, they're probably more interested in balance sheets and, and profitability. And hopefully this taught them a lesson that actually our profitability and our sales ultimately come from the customer. And if we're annoying the customer at checkout by forcing them to give up their email address, then ultimately that could damage the brand in the long term. So I hope that this article and the reality behind the article maybe got some of those senior board members of that business to actually reverse that compulsory addition of the email. Do you know, it reminds me of the many, many conversations I've had with my own customers or even before when I was an employee. This, this idea of an organization, a business owner, prepared to subject their own customers to an experience that they themselves would not stand for. Do mm. you know what I mean? So mm. I remember countless conversations about direct marketing, direct mailing, essentially junk mail, and me having to sit with them. So when you go home tonight, after you said hello to your kids, your dogs and your wife in that order, maybe, and the first thing you're going to do then, after you put your, you know, your kind of comfy slippers on, is to open the mail you've received. Oh, I can't stand this, this stuff. I said, yeah, <laughs> so we're having a conversation about you doing the same thing to other people. 
you know, you want your inbox to be full of uh, special offers, don't you? No, I don't. I hate the bloody thing and I'm looking for ways to block them. I say, yeah, but you're doing that to your customers. And that's been an anomaly for me for so many for, for so many years, Roger. Now, not all organizations want to do that, you know, more. And some of them have, have been covered during the uh, in the news segment are more thoughtful. And I think that's it. It's the thoughtless and mm-hmm. carelessness, you know, that's what is happening because once the employee did that and people actually experienced for themselves what it's like to be in the receiving end of that enraging content, they probably just changed their minds altogether. And that's the problem, I think. People don't live through their own marketing. Mm, absolutely right. And again, that talk that I was mentioning that I did this week is one of the things I always say. If you, as a customer, don't like spam email you don't like pop-up ads you don't like intrusive ads why would you as a marketer (laughs) think that that was all right to do to your customers so some great lessons there i think and i think it's also so dated Come on, you know, even for yourself as a, from personal satisfaction and professional kind of sense of moving forward, let, let's move on from the 90s and 2000s where everything, yeah, I, I remember back in the days, let's let's buy a mailing list and then let's send stuff out to people in the hope. And I used to call this wishful marketing, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it never worked. I'd like to think that um, like a good bottle of wine, Roger, you know, the practices should mature with age. Fantastic, Pascal. Some great spotlights there. So why don't we alter the direction of the spotlight now and shine the spotlight on some tech? Let's move on to the next section of the show, which is marketing tech and apps. So, Pascal, what have you got to share with me this week from the technological universe okay i got something very special for customers listeners viewers who are working b2b and b2c so this is about bringing new life to your social media posts and maybe taking advantage of the end of your festivities where you can be a bit more creative a bit more daring and just let people smile at the end of the busy week so if you are B2B, I'm thinking knowledge industries, I'm thinking personal brand um, kind of organizations and so on. I came across this platform called Content Drips, contentdrips.com, and it will allow you to create some quote style photography. So imagine you are, this picture of you, Roger, maybe at a re- when you did the, that presentation, and you can put together a text based kind of images that looks really professional. And I would say even it's got the edge on on Canva. You could also do some animated graphics, but the one that I think is going to really get people excited is to create some carousel type media post for your social media to really showcase your kind of B2B offering well for this time of year, but of course for the start of 2022. I just was very, very impressed with the ease of use, but also the quality of the graphics you get back to really just present your offering in a very, very enjoyable way for your B2B customers. Now, if you are more of a business to consumer, therefore you have a product to offer, and this is an important time of year for you, I was reminded of this platform called Render Forest. And Render Forest have a new set of templates to create 3D animations to promote your products in particular. And frankly, that would give you the chance to create some great, great Christmas adverts. And they have to be Christmas-based, um, Roger. What I mean to say is some proper 
proper 3D cartoons, some proper 3D animations that would really make somebody go wow because the quality of the scenes that you can select and edit and add the text and your logo and so on are quite exceptional. So for both those products, Content Drips and Render Forest, what impressed me was the high level of the results. It feels very, very expensive. And I think we still operate within a first impressions, you know, type of um, environment, all of us, no matter whether you are B2B or B2C. And I thought those would be great, great additions for um, for you as a business. Take advantage of it now because I think the mood is about right to be uh, in a receipt of newer and fresher former advertising and see where that takes you. There's so much good stuff out there that okay. allows us to just create incredible stuff. I mean, again, you know, if you think back, even 10 years ago, we didn't have access to no. stuff like this. And, you know, if you wanted to put together a 3D animation for your business, you were going to be talking thousands and thousands of pounds to get some external agency to create that for you. And now you can do it on your desktop and probably for free as well. I'm sure some of those templates are free as well. So it's it's remarkable the stuff that we have access to. It is. And when I when I sometimes and I would have um, some of our customers complaining about how hard it is to do marketing, you say, come on. You yeah. know, I think uh, you may want to just reflect on that because 20, 30 years ago, you're right, none of this was available to us. And and I would argue that the, the prices have collapsed, you know, or there's some very, very uh, kind of fair monthly plans. But the quality is so, so good, Roger, that even if you think that's only a tenner a month, what can I get for a tenner a month? For a tenner a month, you're going to get something, as Roger mentioned a moment ago, all of you, that would have cost you thousands of pounds a few years ago. So I'm going to talk about Canva this week, Pascal. And I'm only going to talk about Canva, but there are three new things within Canva which have impressed me a lot. So I'm, I'm sort of not apologizing for only having one sure. actual uh, specific spotlight. Now, I do want to say I've used, been using Canva for the graphics for my own podcast for many years now, but I guess I tend to use Canva more for the sort of graphical stuff. So, you know, there's, there's, I very rarely use Canva for detailing um, photographs. I tend to use um, Adobe Photoshop for messing around with photographs. Now I do use photographs within my Canva work, but often the photographs are quite small, thumbnail size, and, and, and I don't really pay much attention to it. For my own work that I do on YouTube, for thumbnails on YouTube, I tend to use Photoshop, for example, to create a, a, a sort of glow line around my, uh, my face when I'm using using that sort of thing but these new innovations on canva which are specifically related to photographs actually get me to the stage where i'm thinking you know what these really expensive photo apps like photoshop are going to be at risk because people like canva are introducing very very similar and sometimes actually the results look better functionality at an absolute fraction of the cost. So the three things that you can now do to a photograph on Canva, first of all, auto enhance. Now again, you can do that on Photoshop, but you just click a button and it 
obviously does some sort of analysis of the photograph. If it's underexposed, it'll it'll um, increase the exposure and vice versa. If the, the picture looks a bit washed out in terms of color, it might increase the saturation. It might increase the shadows or decrease the shadows. All of the things that you might take quite a while to move those sliders about and, and just experiment, it gives you a pretty good first attempt at absolutely enhancing that photograph and i've tried it with a few um headshots of people um who i've been working with recently and sometimes people send you these photos which are not particularly well lit and this is doing a remarkable job at enhancing those photographs and i even went to the trouble this shows what a geek i am of actually using the auto enhance function within Photoshop on the same photograph and doing the auto enhance within Canva. And in my opinion, some of them, it looked like Canva was doing a better job. So incredible. The second one um, is auto blur. And this one is, you know, when you take a photograph, sometimes it's quite nice to have that blurry background. They call it bokeh, don't they? Uh, and in order to get that effect, you you know, have to have a, a, a really low aperture on your camera. Now, a lot of mobile phones, whilst being incredible um, cameras, often don't have the range of aperture to allow you to create that um, blurry background image. So here again, on the touch of a button, Canva will do a scan of the photograph and say it's a, an image of yourself or a, or a colleague or whatever it is. It will obviously work out where the line differentiates you from the background and then it will blur the background. And of course you can use sliders to make it even blurrier or less blurry. And again, the results absolutely remarkable. And the third thing, and uh, I have to say, this is this is probably where Photoshop still does have the edge because Photoshop has been doing this for very, very many years. It's face retouch. So, you know, if you think you're looking a little bit tired and you've got some bags under your eyes or you look a bit haggard, again, click of a button. And what do you know? It magically removes those bags under your eyes or it removes the laughter lines. Or if, if you, you know, you've unfortunately got a, a spot on your face or something like that, or even you cut yourself shaving, you've got a little, uh, a little red scar, give it a little press of that button and it absolutely does a good job. Now, as I say, this is where Photoshop does have the advantage because Photoshop, you can, you know, you can manipulate the face a lot more um, with it with its plastic um, uh, almost like plastic surgery <laughs> effects but just for the basics I think Canva has moved up a massive step with these enhancements you know I've lost track of how many times Canva has made an appearance on marketing tech and apps but every single time it was a deserving mention because I would love to be on the wall in those uh, development meetings where they think of the next thing they're going to do for their users. And what you can access for free is just incredible. You know, there's not like yep. a, a free version. It's so limited that you have to go for the pro version. They've been very, very fair. This is the ultimate companion for small business owners, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's almost it's almost the the go to thing now for small businesses to use. And I know some people, oh, Canva, that's so unprofessional. But seriously, you can use this to create some really quite 
interesting and really quite professional looking effects. Indeed, uh, and that, that was thinking just that, you know, someone on their laptop with Canva, with Content Drips and Render Forest, I think you've covered all all angles because within Canva, as we explored, I think a few months ago, you can now do video editing. Very simple one, I grant you, but something that will still take you where you want to be to send messages on the internet. So yes, once again, a very, very strong segment. Pascal, let's set the controls of the TARDIS. We'll set the controls of the flux capacitor. It's time for us to head back across the waves of time. We are going to go to This Week in History. And in 1960, Coronation Street, the world's most successful television soap opera, began broadcasting on this day. It went on to become the only soap to have triggered comments by a Prime Minister in Parliament and to have received royal patronage. In 1967, the first successful human heart transplant anywhere in the world happened in South Africa. The patient, Louis Washansky, 53, was terminally ill with heart failure. His surgeon at Groot Schuur Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa, was Christian Barnard. In 1968, Douglas Engelbart gave what became known as the mother of all demos by publicly showcasing the computer mouse at the Joint Computer Conference in San Francisco. And in 1998, the video game Baldur's Gate is released by Interplay Entertainment, designed by Bioware and set in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. It repeatedly won the best computer role-playing game of the year awards between 1999 and 2004. So Pascal, you're a massive Baldur's Gate fan, aren't you? So tell me what is it about this game which is just so appealing? Oh, do you know, it, it's all to do with um, owning your first computer. I mean, albeit it was my dad's computer, being um, given as a present your very first video game and it had to be Baldur's Gate. And of course, back then we were already, all of us playing Dungeons and Dragons around the table using dice, using uh, character sheets in the Games Master that we've been playing for a while. And to have a video game that respected the universe to the point where the rules were respected, you know, the, the character stats were, were the same from strength to constitution to charisma, intelligence, dexterity and wisdom. And to be taken on uh, and doing adventures. But what was special about Baldur's Gate is that very much like a real game of D&D, and that's why, you know, 1998 is a long time ago, but they were breaking boundaries, is that you could split your characters into different parts of the game. So literally, you could have up to three, four different characters that you could run through the keyboard, but they could go in different directions, different parts of the world. That had never been done before because up to that point, most of the game was there's just one character or group of you, but you all stay together and you all go down the corridor the same way. So to have that experience of role-playing game via a computer game was just completely mind-blowing. And as you mentioned, they, they won awards after awards, and they even every so often have a renaissance where there's a um, they have a term for it, you know, when, when they upgrade the, the, the game itself to be able to be played on the PS4, the PS5, and, and the Xbox, and so on. It's just one that uh, people... As soon as you say the name Baldur's Gate, people will just start to smile. Their look is going to start to go a little fuzzy because they, you just transport them back to the younger days when they were playing that game with their friends and screaming and shouting where they lost a fight against a Minotaur. <laughs> I know, and it's still around, isn't it, Baldur's Gate? You can still buy it and play it. 
Absolutely. Um, what, what I will say is that I did download the first one on the PS4, but of course, in 2021, to then have graphics from 1998 on a <laughs> massive HD TV, it, it just doesn't work. And uh, we talking about immersion earlier today, and and the magic of, of moving images. And I think that the transfer on this one, it, it's not as good. So you you play a little bit by nostalgia, but sometimes it's best to just keep it, keep the memories. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about Christian Barnard and the first human right. heart transplant. Now, this is interesting because, you know, they always say about the the, the degrees of separation. But uh, for a long time, I was working in marketing roles in the financial services industry. And I used to work on, and this is going to sound incredibly boring, by the way, I used to work on a type of insurance, which is called critical illness cover. And basically, you take out this policy, and, and if you get cancer or half a heart attack or something like that, it will pay you out an amount of money. It's a bit like life insurance that pays out when you die, except this pays out when you get an illness. And believe it or not, critical illness insurance was invented by Christian Barnard's brother, Marius Barnard. And as a result of that, they came up with this concept of critical illness insurance in South Africa in the mid, um, early to mid eighties. And I think a lot of it was promoted by the fact that Christian Barnard was at the forefront of all this really interesting and exciting and life changing surgery. And Marius Barnard Christian's brother was one of the pioneers of that type of insurance and he came to the United Kingdom many times trying to get the UK to adopt this sort of cover and I was working for one of these insurance companies when I was a lot younger and had a lot more hair and I met Marius Barnard many times and even though he wasn't the one who did the uh, the first transplant he obviously was very much involved in a lot of the uh, stuff that surrounded it. And to hear him tell the stories of that first operation and the many operations that followed is absolutely incredible. And a lot of people in the United Kingdom who've worked in the financial services know a lot about Christian Barnard because they've heard the stories that his brother told. So I just liked that 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 connection quite a lot with that news story and my own personal experience. Oh, absolutely. That's wonderful. But you know, I was just re- reflecting, listening to you, 1967, it feels so early to me that that was possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mean, I know, the, I know. The, the and and happily so because of course we, we moved on and and you know I think that in this week in history we do mention a lot of tech development and we look back, but I'm reminded every single time that it is in health sciences that there has also been some wonderful breakthroughs over over, over the decades. Absolutely right. And I guess, you know, the fact that they managed to come up with a vaccine for COVID within Mm. whatever it was, six months, again, another incredible piece of development. So, Pascal, we always look back at This Week in History and remember that we really owe a debt to these pioneers who have given us the world that we live in today. You know, we've said already, look at all the incredible technology that we've got from a marketing point of view, from a health point of view. We wouldn't have that unless these people in the past absolutely devoted their lives to developing what we enjoy and take for granted now. So Pascal, should we move on? Should we do some shout outs for some creators? 
In this section of the show, Pascal and I give a shout out for creators, mainly from within our own network, sometimes slightly outside of it. So Pascal, who are you going to give a shout out to this week? So this week it's about Jenny Field. Now, Jenny was mentioned on this podcast many months ago. She's part of the Calm Aged Rebels podcast series with Advita Patel and Trudy Lewis, but she's also got a solo show. She's the host of the Redefining Communications podcast series, and it's presented as a short-form content, which I think is very interesting, where with her pal, she's doing more long form for for this one for her customer. She's doing short form, no more than 15 minutes of a quick burst of insight and inspiration, according to Jenny. Now, I've listened to it, and it's just so good. It's so lovely. It feels like someone who's rang you to have a chat, and you're just listening away to one of their deliberations or, or thoughts that they're going through, or someone that's left you a lovely message, and you just listen to it. It's well produced. There's some lovely music in the background as well. And it's all to do with making you think about the power of communication, and in her case, how you can convert chaos into calm by just introducing you know, the, the right things. And I just love the way that... Um, She's carrying on working with Advita Patel and Trudy Lewis, but she's also find something that she wants to say in her own way, and she's gone short form. So recent titles include things like organizational growth, culture and leadership, employment, employee engagement, experience and internal communications. One that I'm going to look forward to listening to is the field model trademark. So this is her three-step model to actually bring um, calm to your organization through communication, how she goes about it. But what I liked about, again, the um, the production feels very much like hers. It feels like an extension of her personal brand. So Jenny Field, um, once again, New Beginnings, you know that I'm a big fan and very best of luck with the new podcast, Redefining Communications. Fantastic, Pascal. I've recently had a bit of a clear out when it comes to podcasts. I've actually unsubscribed from quite a lot of podcasts that I've been subscribed to for a long time. Not because I, I don't like the podcast. I just, I'm trying to force myself to listen to, to new stuff. And this is definitely one that I'm going to have a look at. My shout out is for a lady called Carrie Eddins. Now on social media, she goes by the the, the name of Blondepreneur, the Blondepreneur, uh, which I always think is quite is quite interesting um, and fun. And she's just launched something called the 12 Days of Twitter PR. Now, she started this on the 1st of December, as you would expect. And this podcast is going to be going out on around about the 8th of December. So there'll be a few days into this. So if you want to check out what she's doing, you'll already find that there's eight days worth of this stuff already out there and a few more days yet to come. But we don't really do much about PR on the show, Pascal. And PR has always been, for me, part of the marketing mix. In fact, for for many years when I was working in big corporate, I guess PR was the bit that I might have actually enjoyed the most, you know, coming up with messages for the media and getting out and meeting journalists and that sort of thing. And Carrie is an absolute advocate for the use of PR. And again, just like we've said throughout today's show, there are so many tools available to us now to help us to project messages out there and to actually use PR much more effectively than we would have been able to do in the past without spending masses and masses of money. So check out 
Carrie Eddings, 12 Days of Twitter PR. Now, the ones that are already out there, I'm not going to spoil it by telling you what they are. We haven't got time to do that within this section of the show, but there's some great stuff already out there and there's more to come. So the 12 Days of Twitter PR from Carrie Eddings. Smashing. Okay, Pascal. It is time to wave a magic wand. It is time to surround yourself with all sorts of different shapes of owls. It is time to hop onto your broomstick. It is time to disappear in a puff of smoke. Shall we talk about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone? Well, Pascal, we're heading towards Christmas. It's only a couple of weeks away. And believe it or not, 20 years ago this year, we saw the first of the Harry Potter films, which after that actually became a regular feature of this time of year. But the original Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone came out in the year 2001. So let's refresh our memories from two decades ago by watching the trailer. ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates. Keep an eye on the staircases. They like to change. Good afternoon, class. Welcome to your first flying lesson. Stick your right hand over the broom and say up. Up! Oh, uh. Wow. <laughs> Mr. Longbottom, no! Mr. Longbottom, Mr. Longbottom, exactly where do you think you're going? Do you really have the scar? Wicked. Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. First years should note that the dark forest is strictly forbidden. That no magics to be used between the classes and the corridors. Petrificus totalis. The third floor corridor is out of bounds to everyone who does not wish to suffer a most painful death. understand this, Harry, because it's very important. Not all wizards are good. I'm going to bed before either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed. Or worse, expelled. She needs to sort out her priorities. I think it is clear that we can expect great things from you. So, Pascal, you and I have talked about this film in the green room, and as you know, I've had a little bit of an issue with the, with the Harry Potter films over the years. There's something that's just not connected me to them, and I've never been as absolutely and utterly passionate about them as perhaps you are and, and, and other, other people are. But I have to say, 
as I always do, because I knew we were going to be talking about this film today, <laughs> I rewatched it. We do actually have the full collection on Blu-ray, so we've got all of them in really good high quality. And I have to say, I did enjoy it. The storytelling is fabulous. The music is fabulous. The cin- cinematography is fabulous. And I suppose the actors were young, you know, Daniel Radcliffe. Um, they, they were young in those days, Rupert Grint, Emma Watson. And, and uh, uh, as the series progressed, obviously they matured as actors and their skills became, you know, the the peak. But uh, yeah, I really I really did enjoy it. it. You've given me an opportunity to reevaluate something which I've always been a little bit dubious about. Well, that's an absolute pleasure. So that means that perhaps you're not a muggle after all. Perhaps you are indeed <laughs> able to join in you know, Hogwarts. 20 years. Indeed, the um, the producers and the official kind of brand managers celebrated with the hashtag 20 years of movie magic and they've, they've had celebrations galore. Um, I can't just you know, mention, you're right, the music. I mean, John Williams knows his stuff, but yeah. if there was ever a perfect match between the soundscape and what you can see on screen, um, the Harry Potter series are just absolutely amazing. I would agree. I think this being the first one, some some of the acting can be a little can wooden, and some of the the cuts and and the way in which story goes is maybe a little heavy handed. But it's all is forgiven when, as you pointed out, I do own the uh, Blu-ray box set. In fact, we have a routine with Denise. Now every other year, it's either Harry <laughs> Potter or Lord of the Rings. I can't remember where we are, but I'm sure it's going to be Harry Potter now because of our conversation, and. We also know that when it comes to the marketing we're going to come to in a moment, it was very much a case of less is more. And what is interesting is my memory in 2001 is that I knew so little about this film, probably because of the very restrained um, marketing campaign. I'd not read the books like many of my friends had, although they did encourage me, but I'm just not much of a reader, more, more of, a, of a watcher, as, as you know. And But I, I just knew that this was the Christmas movie. I mean, that I was looking for. This was going to be the way to get into the Christmas spirit. And that movie did not fail. Yeah. And if it wasn't, I don't think it was made as a Christmas film, was it? But I guess, you know, wizards and, and uh, magic wands and magic itself, there is always something Christmassy about it. So I guess it feels like a Christmas movie anyway. What well, was very, very clever, and that's, I suspect, based on, on the books and the uh, the wonderful talent of J.K. Rowling, there was an element of Britishness that mm. I absolutely adored, and so did the world over. This was a very, very much a movie taking place in, in, in England, and you had all, all that. But there was also an element of retro, so they were all magicians, but the mm. way they dressed, the, the way in which they went to the different shops and buying proper books and this and the other, because 2000 was the heydays of tech. You know, you and I will remember, um, probably back then, starting to own onto our third or, se- or fourth computer, you know, mm. and they went retro as well. Yeah. And yeah. the design of the costumes and so on was just um, everything that worked really well. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the little touches. I mean, I love that that shopping street that they find, <laughs> which is hidden down a, an alleyway in London, and and of course the, the the platform where they have to run into the wall, and of course they disappear into the wall and appear in this hidden platform. 
things like, I mean, it, the station, so archetypally British, as you've said, uh, but just um, bringing in that retro feel. I think I, I'd never really, I'd never really thought about it before, but I absolutely agree. It, it sort of took you back at a time when everything else was taking you forward. Absolutely. So the camp, so the movie was kind of film produced. Um, I mean, the, the special effects and so on in the year two thousand. People had some inkling something was happening, but they've been very, very good at keeping things under wrap. And the first official announcement was on the first of December with a teaser poster that got people go completely wild. So, what was actually in the poster, which? lit up so many people's um, imaginations. So for the fans of Harry Potter, they got rewarded by because they knew exactly what the poster was featuring. And yeah. for people like me who had not read the book, I was thinking, ooh, what, what is this? So you had um, essentially a photo of an owl delivering the letter to Harry Potter, who is living in the cupboard under the stairs, which was new to me, at Four Privet Drive in Surrey. But also we were introduced to the first calligraphy of the term Harry Potter, a kind of mm. very golden and magical kind of lettering. We knew that it was going to be November 2001, which frankly was an entire year to wait for, which is probably yes. uh, tough. But also for the first time ever, uh, audiences around the world were given two different titles. And I must confess, Roger, I don't remember any of the movies apart from changing the, um, you know, the language because of nationality. But in the English language, I don't remember a movie being given two different titles. For the UK and the EU, we had Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stones. But for the US and Asia, it was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And... I'm just intrigued as to your reaction to that, but also, have you seen things like this done before? It's it's really strange, isn't it? And, and, and I'm not quite sure why they did it. I mean, usually you'd think it's something to do with the United States. You know, I, I always remember that um, in the UK, we had these chewy fruit sweets called opal fruits. Um, but in America, they were called Starburst. Okay. And I think, event, I think eventually the, uh, the, the, um, the company that produces them decided – Everybody in the States knows Starburst, but when they come to the UK, they can't find Starburst anywhere <laughs> on the shelves. And, and even though we're saying, well, we like our opal fruits, you leave our opal fruits alone, they decided to change it to Starburst so that when the Americans came over to the UK, they would still be able to uh, understand that Starburst was the same same as opal fruits. Now, I don't know whether there's anything going on here. Is is Does a philosopher mean something different in the States? I, I suspect not. Is it a word that people just don't? understand so philosophers and sorcerers are not the same sort of thing at all are they so i'm not really quite sure the only other film that i can think of which nearly had two titles was actually um the james bond film license to kill um which was originally going to be called license revoked ah, but right. in this in the states when people say that their license is revoked it, it usually applies to your driving license um you know you've been banned um, from driving for some reason so they say your license has been revoked and and they they thought that that association with the driving license was so strong that they had to change the title of the film so that it was bleedingly obvious that it was the license to kill that was um, actually being talked about but no i just don't know 
<laughs> I don't know why why philosopher and why sorcerer. Yeah, I'm sure there was definitely a marketing uh, business case for it. Um, I'm wondering because I've been trying to once again we should maybe ask you know the very people that were involved back in the days whether because the in the US only there was a big big. Uh, trend. You remember all sword and sorcery movies in the eighties mm. and nineties, where they, they want mm. to piggyback on that. But to your point, yeah, there's a big, big difference between the philosopher and, and the sorcerer. So the fans went wild offline and online. Even that was the early days of um, boards and forums, as well as uh, fan websites. And people wanted a copy of that poster because it just looked so majestic, particularly if you were a big fan. We had to wait till March 2001 to see a, a teaser trailer that was only at the movies and on some of the early days of streaming services. And the first proper trailer that we heard and watched a second ago was at the end of June 2001. Mm. And what is interesting from a marketing point of view, Roger, this trailer was only available on the official Harry Potter website. It was not sent, as we've seen before with other movies, to you know the magazines, the, the movie editors, yeah. the, the fan clubs, and so on. You can only get it and watch it on the on the website. I suppose if you knew how to do it, you could maybe hack the website and download <laughs> the uh, video, but that wouldn't be in the spirit of things. And I just think it's interesting, a official Harry Potter website, 2001, let's remind ourselves, 20 years ago, that's quite a, an undertaking. And the only way for people to watch the trailer was to go on that website. There was an element of, I don't know, um, scarcity around this marketing campaign, wasn't there? It, almost like it was a deliberate element of scarcity. So they're limiting the access to the trailer, which I imagine increased the amount of traffic to that website, you know, massively for for obvious reasons. Um, but, you know, they only partnered with one big brand, didn't they? Um, Coca-Cola for promotions um, around the film launch. Now, if you think about it, and we talked about Skyfall, uh, um, the other Bond film on, on one of these um, film marketings, and it was absolutely littered with product placement, wasn't it? Whereas this one, I mean, uh, the, 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 there was just, just the one partner, and there must have been a motivation behind that to keep it exclusive. I think it was so striking in terms of a different approach that industry experts commented upon it. So mm. not only were they, were they talking about the movie, but saying, oh, by the way, have you noticed that the marketing is very different? What I think is interesting about the Coca-Cola partnership is that you will not see the brand in the movie whatsoever. To begin with, the filmmakers said, oh, by the way, Coca-Cola, yeah, you can be the partner and essentially promote the film uh, via TV, print, and, and other and online media. But the, the stars of the film will not be seen drinking Coca-Cola. And you're going to spend some of that money to establish a um, literacy program in the US and other parts of the world. So there was they were very, very demanding. But it almost feels that it's right for the movie not to have, forgive me, um, Harry and, and his pals on the train to Hogwarts, you know, just drinking cans of Coke somehow. Yeah, and, and even the even the merchandise was limited as well um you know i think you compared um the harry potter film to batman which was which was um, released in 1989 and that had almost 150 different licenses issued for it whereas this one was 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 actually a lot lower at 87 again it just has that feel of 
almost like scarcity. And um, I'm sure they could have sold 150 or even more, but it just felt as if they were very being very, very targeted. And maybe that was why the marketing was so successful. I would agree. I think um, obviously Warner Brothers, who, who, who got the right eventually. Another first is that J.K. Rowling was really, really involved in the film. You know, she didn't sell the right and then moved on, and and she was almost um, appointed as a brand guardian, where she was reported to have turned down so many offers of products, including mm. some Harry Potter sunglasses or some all sort of uh, things that she felt were just irrelevant to, to the movie. But if I, if you go to the um, Harry Potter store in Kings Cross, have you had the pleasure yet, uh, Roger? No, I haven't. No, of course you, you're just a, a newborn fan, so I'm sure <laughs> that in your next trip you go and go to the platform nine and three quarters and to the store. If you go in the store, it's just magical. The music's playing, but there's not a lot to choose from. But there is is so tight and so precise mm. that it's just very very engaging. And again, in terms of the licenses, I mean. Even companies like Lego, you know, were able to produce sets, obviously, from from the film. But they were told, you have to, once again, be educational. This is about literacy. This is about, you know, encouraging um, new authors, new creators. And they even, as far as um, make sure that the family could engage with their Lego creator video games. So it just felt uh, well well controlled. I mean, the control continued, Rod, as you well know, in and around the, the artwork. I mean, there's not a plethora of posters and, and behind-the-scenes shots and so on. And indeed, they turned down, they as in Warner Brothers and, and the producers turned down many, countless, you'd imagine, offers to go on TV and radio prior to, to the launch. Yeah, and I think they were just keeping the, you know, the quality Quality was what they were going for here rather than quantity. Mm. And they, they had guidelines. And, and as you say, maybe J.K. Rowling was was partly behind that. And she was almost like the guardian of the brand. Uh, but it obviously paid off because, it again, and I keep coming back to this word scarcity, but it, it really made everything feel high quality and exclusive. So for me, the, the, the lesson is this idea of whilst – on occasion, one will have access to huge budget. I mean, this is just enormous budget. It's not an invitation to go crazy on the spend and the spread and, and the and the kind of the uh, the rich. You can be very very targeted, and that led to some very high profile premieres in London, New York, and Los Angeles. I think the one that I remember from the, the days was being quite envious because I lived in Newcastle at the time, but I knew in London the. Um, Audion Leicester Square, where most of the premieres are taking place, had been changed to look like Hogwarts School. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that must be so magical, that. And, of course, I remember, um, I'm pretty sure, I remember I, I came to visit you in Durham a while back, and weren't some of the scenes filmed in the cathedral, um, in the cloister area. I'm sure that when we were watching the film last week, I said to Trisha, oh, look, that's that bit in Durham Cathedral that Pascal pointed out to me. Yes, that's that's my party trick. People come to see me in Durham. <laughs> Let me show you where Harry Potter was filmed. And then, of course, we had um, Annick. So the whole Northumberland and Northeast was uh, showcased uh, and part of Yorkshire and Scotland, of course. Um, I'm, I'm, I would imagine now, nowadays there'll be some Harry Potter tours in and around the UK. Yeah. And one of the things that I did think was good, and again, it comes back to the scarcity thing, but actually showing respect for the young stars, you know, Daniel Ratcliffe, Emma Watson, etc., who were really young at the time, you know, um, 
and they kept them away from the usual celebrity conventions and and uh, a bit big news pundits didn't uh, news junkets didn't they 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 kept them safe i guess mm. they kept them out of the spotlight but again i think that just added to the exclusivity and the and the feel I think it was the right thing to do, my goodness. They were so yeah. young. Can you imagine entering yeah. a, your, your typical Comic-Con and so on, which is, you know, it's very convivial, but it's very loud. It's very kind mm. of, uh, you know, the atmosphere is very, very unique. And, and I think it was the right thing to do. And from that point on, as you mentioned, over the course of 10 years, we were treated to one, you know, masterpiece after the other. I mean, I don't think there's one that I, I like the, the least. I think, as I mentioned, every year, every other year, should I say, we watched them over the course of two, three days. And when you do that, you know, when you have that kind of binge watch moment, the stories, they link so tightly. It's really, really quite impressive. Yeah, and I did make the commitment after we plucked the <laughs> Blu-ray out of the Blu-ray player and put it back into its box. I did say, okay, that's the first one done. I'm going to make the commitment now to, to watch the rest, and hopefully I will see each of them with a renewed enthusiasm and renewed wonder. Do you know, that has been a wonderful addition to film marketing. You know, 20 years ago, you know, Christmas became just a bit more magical. And I, I, that feeling has not died off. And uh, it, it's just, you know, great to be a film fan nowadays, isn't it? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Again, we're lucky that we can watch all of these films so often and uh, whenever we want in such amazing high quality. Well, everyone, thank you once again so much for tuning in to Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Whether you watched this on video, whether you listened to this on audio, Pascal and I really do appreciate you taking the time to tuning in. Please do subscribe and also comment upon what you're listening to. You can find us on Twitter or you can leave a comment in the YouTube video below the video. So that's it for this week. And until next time, please do go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm -hmm.